My name's Brookings, and I'm an alcoholic. Y'all better watch me. I'm wired now, man. Thank you. I want to thank Dick for asking me to come up and speak at uh, at the anniversary, 14th year anniversary. It's an honor to be asked to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I've been in, in uh, service work ever since I got into AA. Uh, I came home from treatment and I uh, met my sponsor the first night. See, I already, I, I already had one assigned to me when I came home from treatment. I didn't know you could choose your own. <laughs> but they, somebody chose one for me, and uh, I was talking to Mr. Ed, and the first meeting I ever went to in Millersville after I got out of treatment, he said, uh, I want you to start going to assembly in Macon. I don't know from assembly. I don't know from AA. How do I know what assembly is? I said, why? He said, because I said so. You write that down, you got it. <laughs> I thought the first step was getting a car. <laughs> and I'm standing here with some <clears throat> people that I've just seen in service work ever since I've been in. Johnny and Dick and Randall back there and uh, a few more V over there, here. And uh, Jerry, been in service work. And uh, you know, we have 36 spiritual principles. We have the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and 12 concepts. So it takes all 36 spiritual principles for me to have a whole program. You know, we all seen the triangle, haven't we? Okay. The bottom of the triangle is recovery, right? And each side of the triangle, one side is unity, one side is service. But if you turn the triangle upside down, Service and unity holds up recovery. And that's what I'm here to do today is to stay sober one more day. And this is what I've been asking to do today. And I also uh, got somebody with me that's uh, been a big help in my life. And she's in Al-Anon. Any of y'all married and your wife's going to Al-Anon, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> but I want y'all to meet my wife, Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane, would you stand up and say... She's been in service work too ever since she got in Al-Anon. Uh, I hadn't had a drink since December 2nd, 1983. And it's not anything I've done. It's what the program Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. God in, in, in AA <clears throat> is number one in my life. We was coming home from a week meeting one night, and I was about six months into my sobriety. I ain't drinking, but I'm a long way from being sober, so I called it my sobriety period. And I, we were coming home, and I said, you know what? God in AA is number one in my life. She said, pull over. I pulled over the side of the road. I said, what's the matter? She said, what the hell do you mean God in AA is number one? I want to be. I said, baby, you can't be. I said, without God in AA, I ain't going to have you. I said, you prove this. She had a bad character defect. She kept leaving home. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't hang in there with this drunk. And... Uh, it was only twice in a day when I would take a drink. That's when I was with somebody by myself or going somewhere coming back. <laughs> and I never, and I, I never drank on a day that didn't end in a while. So, <laughs> I, uh, I love to drink liquor. And I thought I could control it. I really did. But towards the end, the last two or three years of my drinking, I couldn't control it. I thought the top was just to get the bottle from the car to the kitchen table without spilling it. Once you take that top off, top off that bottle, you ain't going to put the top back on, you know. <clears throat> so I was going to get up here and tell you 
what I was like, what happened to what I'm like now. I hear a lot of people get up here and say they're going to tell you what it's like, what happened, what it's like today. I don't think it changes. I'm supposed to tell you what I was like. And I'm going to tell you a little story about two guys drinking in the bar on the other side of town here one afternoon in a hotel. One guy says to the other one, says, you know, so this is a unique hotel we're in. He said it's 22 stories tall because of the contour of the building and the air current coming down the street. Said you get up on top of this building and you jump off. Said you get down about the fourth floor. Said the air currents pick you up and set you down right where you jumped off. So the guy said, you crazy. He said, come on, I'll show you. So they go to the top of this 22-story building. He said, now watch me. He sails off and he gets down about the fourth floor. Comes back and sits down and just puts anything you ever said. Second guy kind of rubbed his head. He said, I don't believe I saw that. He said, you do it. He said, no, you do it one more time. Let me be sure I think I saw what I think I saw. He said, well, watch carefully. He sails off again. Fourth floor, comes down, sits down where he jumped off. He said, I've done it twice. You go ahead and do it. So this guy jumps off of that 22-story building and slapped right on the sidewalk. He made a mess down there. First guy goes back to the bar, bellies up to the bar, and the bartender comes up and sets a drink down in front of him and looks at him and says, you know, Superman, so you're a son of a bitch when you drink. <laughs> Excuse me, preacher. You still him? <laughs> but that's what I was like. And she, she, she could tell my story better than I can. A lot of my story is hearsay. I was a blackout drinker. I had it when it first came out, and I, I don't know everything I've done. And I believe that when these pre-Alanons know you don't know what you did the night before. They add to your story. <laughs> she never would wake me up. See, I was a traveling salesman. I was on the road about 70% of the time. I traveled 13 states for 31 years, and uh, I uh, could drink all I wanted on the road. When I got home, I had to kind of moderate a little bit around her. Except for the last two or three years, I didn't care about anything then. And uh, she never would wake me up and talk about the night before. What she would do, I'd wake up, not wake up, I'd come to. You know, the you know, only one thing about passing out the night before is coming to the next day. A lot of people wake up, a lot of alcoholics come to. Looks like a dog on expressway at rush hour. She'd be sitting at her nightstand with a cup of coffee and a cigarette with a chair facing me. And I'd open my eyes, and it's been a bad night. And there she's sitting. And the first thing out of her mouth is, did you mean what you said last night? Now, how in the hell am I supposed to know what I said last night? Well, my question back to her was, baby, what do you think I said? And then she tell me what she thought I said. I said, oh, you took it all wrong. I said, I meant this. I had to get out of that, you know. And sometime, you know, she would apologize for me for starting the ruckus the night before. We're corn artists. We can't get where we are today without being cheating, stealing, conning people, and that's what I did all my life. And uh, the only, only, way, only reason I ever told a lie was to make myself look better to get out of trouble. <laughs> I had my first drink on December the 21st, 1948. I had moved from a little town called Gordon, Georgia, over to Sandersville. Y'all ever heard of Sandersville, Georgia? It's the largest town of its size in the world. 
And I moved in. A couple of days later, I met the prettiest, sexiest little girl you ever seen. Just beautiful. Golden blonde hair. The figure just, oh, yes, cool. And I fell madly in lust. Love right away. <laughs> and we started going together a few weeks after that. And that Sunday, uh, that Christmas day, I went over to take her her Christmas present that afternoon after I had got up and had Christmas with my family. And I went over to Sarah Jane's house to give her her present I had bought her. And her mother and dad and aunt and uncle were sitting at the kitchen table. They had a fruit jar in front of them, had mason on the side of it, still lid on top. And her daddy pushed that bottle across the table and said, boy, you want a drink? I said, yes, I'll take a drink. Today, I can't even tell you what I chased it with. I can't remember what it was, tea, milk, water, coffee, tea. But there's a couple of things I remember that first drink. I remember how it smelled and how it tasted. It smelled and tasted like something you would sit in and remove a tattoo. <laughs> it was pretty horrible. But there's another thing I remember about that first drink. How it burned my mouth and I could feel it going down my esophagus to my stomach. And when it got down there, it was like an explosion went off. And God Almighty come up through my ears and everything. And I says, my God, I have found the answer to life. So if one drink makes you feel that good two is better right I took three more drinks out of that bottle that day for a total of four drinks I got drunk knee walking drunk the first time I ever drank hugging that commode going oh god anybody ever been there in those shimmering waters you know <laughs> but in Georgia on a hot day that ain't all bad you can lay your head over get that cool porcelain and it kind of feels good to you and they put me to bed and I woke up a few hours later feeling bad but you know I couldn't wait to do it again because I know how I felt that I remember how I felt that few hours that I could motivate before I got so sick because it took all the fear and low self-esteem and feelings of inadequacy away from me it was like a magic elixir I drank all the way through high school she and I loved to dance and we used to go to all kinds of dances. I was driving since I was 11 years old. And we would take my dad's uh, company truck and we'd go to dances all over the place. And I'd leave my liquor out in the vehicle so the people in the dance would know I was drinking because they, were, they knew my mom and daddy and they might tell on me. And we'd cut a road, didn't we, baby? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a little aged on me now. I can't do all that stuff I used to do. If I get out there and start moving, all this fat takes over and it starts. <laughs> One thing about us fat folks, we sweat, but we don't wrinkle. <laughs> and we had a ball all through high school. And she was always talking to me about you drinking too much. And we drank before football games. You know, I played football before you had face masks. And you played both ways. You played offense and defense. You couldn't, uh, couldn't substitute with two people at the time. I was right in for three years. And uh, we played both ways. And we drank for the football game. We had a water boy had a, a cough syrup bottle with moonshine liquor in it. And before we went on the field, we'd take a couple of sips. And at halftime, we'd take another couple of sips. Because so we know we were going to get hell knocked out of us. And, and, and that kind of takes that that fear away from you a little bit. And uh, I played basketball, baseball, 
football, ran track. I'd have played golf and tennis, but we didn't have them at the time. I played anything with ball on it and done pretty good at it. And I, but I, I really majored in drinking. And I couldn't pass up a drink. You know, I, I, after I got grown and got married a couple of times, <laughs> we, we put numbers on these marriages so we know which one we're talking about, where we're talking. See, uh, let me tell you right now. She is my first wife and my third wife. I'm her first and fourth husband. Y'all keep it up, you need a score card. <laughs> yeah. We went together six years. We was married six and a half. And it was bad. It was bad. There was physical abuse on both sides of that thing. She, uh, I never hit her what I heard hit me first. I'd be drinking and she wanted me to just have two beers. Well, I'd open the third one or get the third drink. And she'd come up and knock it out of my hand, and boy, the fight was on then. And uh, so we, we lasted for six years. I quit college. I had a scholarship to college, messed that up drinking. Went to a military school for a couple of years. She graduated uh, three years after I did. Not that I was three years smarter than she was. I only went to 11 grades, and she had to go to 12. <laughs> and... Uh, so I was up in Atlanta where she was working one day, and we got to talk, let's, let's, let's get married, okay? So we pulled our, pulled our money. I didn't have a car. I had hitchhiked to Atlanta. We pulled our money. We had $146 between us. So we went down to the bus station in Atlanta and caught a, bought bus tickets to Jacksonville because she had an uncle in Jacksonville that we thought might help us when we got down there, which he did. But we was going to get off in uh, Waycross and go to Folkestone, Georgia, and get married. Y'all don't remember this. This was the dark ages, young people. Georgia used to have a law that once you got your marriage license, you had to wait three days to get married. I think it ought to be two or three weeks, don't y'all? <laughs> yeah. But Folkestone, Georgia, did not honor that. You could get married at any time of the day or night in Folkestone. So we rode all night on that Greyhound bus, and this is for the days of the interstate. And uh, we rode all night, stopped at every pick path between Atlanta and Waycross. And I went in a, in a restaurant to get some coffee. We asked the waitresses, how can we get the folks? She said, y'all want to get married, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't need that. All you got to do is go over to the clinic. The guy will take your blood. Uh, he'll give you the results in an hour. Go in the courthouse and you get married. That's what we did. We was married an hour and 15 minutes after we hit Waycross. <coughs> Then we got the next bus on to Jacksonville and called our uncle. He'd come down and got us. In a few weeks, we found jobs. Well, because I had quit school, college, I got a notice from Uncle Sam. Greetings. <laughs> Having submitted your name to the draft board in Washington County, Georgia, you have been selected by your friends and neighbors to serve in the United States Army. I wanted to run all them friends and neighbors up and kick them right square in their teeth, you know. <laughs> But I went in and I stayed in that army 22 months, 20 days, and 22 and a quarter hours. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and got out, went to the University of Georgia. Picked up my second addiction at the University of Georgia. It was called co-eds. There was a lot of beautiful little girls up there at that time. And me being a man of the world, being in Maryland, doing my... Doing my uh, 
Army career, uh, I started cheating on this woman. And I thought that was the thing to do. A man drinks liquor, runs around with women, and he gambles. That's what a man does, right? So you can sit in the bar and brag about all the people you've been with, all the conquests you have, all that stuff. That's what I thought a man was. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I'd be sitting in a, in a bar with a couple of my buddies, and another guy would walk in, in the bar with a good-looking girl, and you punch your buddy and say, he can't handle her. Y'all, y'all remember what I said? Y'all ever do that? Yeah. Well, it got worse at the University of Georgia. There was physical abuse. And one night it culminated. We had a 56 Chevrolet convertible. And uh, I told her she made me mad. She was always making me mad. (laughs) But she made me mad this night. I said, get in the car. And she knew what was coming. I was fixing to take her for a ride. I'd get her in that car and we'd go down the highway and spin out in the middle of the road, ride through the woods. It didn't matter. It was just crazy. It was crazy. The part about being insane, I don't have any, uh, any problems with that. I was insane when I drank. And uh, I walked out of the door that night, and she slammed the door. I heard the night latch catch. I turned around and busted that glass out with my left hand, reached in with my right hand and took the night latch off and walked in. In the meantime, she had ran in the bedroom and grabbed a single barrel 12-gauge shotgun we had laid in the corner. And she's standing 28 foot across that living room. I know how far it was because I measured later on. 28 foot across that living room with that gun pointed at me. Well, I got my courage in him now. And I walk up to that gun barrel and it's sticking right there. And she's standing there, don't know what I'm fixing to do. Scared as hell of me. And I look in the eye, I said, pull the trigger, put the damn gun down. And you know what she did? She moved the gun away from my chest. I took it out of her hand and slapped her and said, next time you'll pull the damn trigger. And I went to the hospital and had my hand sewed up. Well, we can't, see, it just gets cloudy here. We don't know how long it was, whether it was two weeks, two months, or what. But it wasn't long that she got the courage to leave me. And I had told her, I said, don't you ever think about leaving me. If you ever leave me, I'll hunt you down and kill you. Boy, that's love, ain't it? Ain't that love? Intimidating people that love you and you think you love them and all. That's just kind of SOB I was. Well, she uh, left me and she came to Atlanta and got a plane and flew off. She didn't tell her mom and daddy or nobody where she was going. And she was gone for uh, over a week before she had a dream and that made her call her mom and say, I'm coming home. Well, I knew what bus she was going to be on because my daddy had a friend that was in charge of the telephone company in Sandersville at the time. And uh, he had uh, tapped the lines. And I knew what bus she was going to be on and everything. But I knew better than to, to meet that bus. So she got home to her mom and daddy, and I went up there one time to see her. And she was in her bedroom, and her daddy, he's about that high. He was about that high. Weighed about 145 pounds. He walked in the bedroom with me, and I took one look at her, and I knew it was over before she was concerned. And I never bothered again. Well, I started seeing a few ladies. Finally met one. And what I did when she left me is I quit drinking. Show this woman, I'm no damn alcoholic. 
I was sitting with my best friend in Atlanta a few weeks after this, and uh, we were drinking tall fall staffs. And I got about halfway down in that bed, and I pushed across the table. I said, Stuart, I'm going to quit drinking. He said, sure you are. I didn't touch another thing with alcoholic in it for five and a half years. I'll show this woman I ain't no damn alcoholic. I'd go to dances and stuff and parties, and I'd get me a glass of ginger ale and walk around. And uh, I'm high on life, people. I'm high on life. I don't need to drink. I was fooling myself because all the time I was wishing like hell I could drink. I did. I, I whitened up that for five and a half years. I met a lady. We got married, and I was married to her for three and a half years. And we started raising a family. We had a, a boy first. Eighteen months later, we had a girl. And then I adopted her oldest son from a previous marriage. So within three years, I had three kids. And I, I started back drinking after five and a half years of not having anything. I was, making, I was working for this company out of San Juan, Kale and Companies, making more money than I ever made in my life, traveling all over the country, calling on presidents of companies and technical directors and laboratories. Man, I, I'm like Bill Wilson. I had arrived. So I've been dr uh, dry for five and a half years, so I'm no damn alcoholic. So I started back drinking. Three years later, Betty and I was divorced because she was tired of my crap. I quit drinking again for 18 months. I come to find out that my, my problem wasn't stopping. My problem was I couldn't start stopping again. I always could, knew I was going to start back when I quit. Well, after Betty and I got, uh, got divorced, and this is kind of funny. Some of you might identify with it. But we always stayed in touch with each other, she and I. She was on her third or fourth one, that the third one that time, I think. <laughs> and, uh, but we would always keep in touch with her, with each other. I'd call her and, uh, at her house, and she says, how did you know I was here by myself? I said, I don't know. And we'd talk for a few minutes. And uh, then when I got divorced from Betty, I came to Atlanta one day, and I... I called her at work and I said, let's have coffee. So we, we met at a restaurant called Heron's. It sounds underneath. Had some coffee. I looked at a few months later. I called her and I said, let's have lunch. I said, you pick the place. I'll meet you there. She picked the Midnight Sun. Y'all remember the Midnight Sun? One of the most expensive places in Atlanta. <laughs> but we met for lunch and we sitting there having a beer. And I looked at her and I said, when did you leave Bruce? This is her third husband. She said, I hadn't left him. I said, you're a liar. She said, how do you know I've left Bruce? She said, only my mom and dad and me and him know. See, in Sandersville, my folks and her folks only live four houses apart. And for the last two weekends, she had been home to see her mom and daddy in her own personal car. They never come in her personal car. They came in his company car. And she said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've left him. I said, well, I'd like to start seeing you again. Well, I sure as hell don't know where I want to see you or not. I said, well, you got a week to think about it. I'm flying out to Texas on Monday. I'll be back at Atlanta Airport Friday afternoon. I call if you want to go out, we'll go out. I called her, and she said, yeah, we'll go out. And from that, we started dating. And for every... Uh, 
every weekend I'd come in off the road and, and sometimes we'd be having a beer before we go. I said, baby, let's get married again. No, no, amen. And one night she told me, she said, don't you ever ask me to marry you again. She said, if I ever want to get married, I'll ask you. I said, you got a deal. <laughs> Three and a half years later, we're sitting there having a beer to go out one night. And she says, uh, what are you doing next weekend? I said, why? She said, you want to get married? I said, I can't. I got a fishing trip in North Carolina with some customers. <laughs> But uh, a few weeks later, we got married again in a church this time. See, we kind of figured out that our problem was we'd always have been married by the justice of peace. My two marriages, we'd been in uh, her three marriages, was justice of peace. So this time we thought we'd do it in church so it would take. <laughs> so we got married in church. My mom and dad and her mom and dad and my three kids were there. And we set up playing house again. Bought a house in Smyrna, moved up there. And people, if y'all from Atlanta, that's good. Y'all stay here, okay? Y'all occupy Atlanta. I don't want to have anything to do with Atlanta. I don't like Atlanta. Uh, it's the biggest parking lot in the southeast. And uh, so we started uh, seeing each other and... Uh, Got married, bought a house in Smyrna. And when I'm on the road, I can drink all I, I want. I'm on that company card, see. Set up the bar, bartender, playing the big shot. Always playing the big shot. I want to be the big shot. And uh, when I'm home, i got to try to moderate. I'm on the road about 70% of the time. I take about a week off during the month. I don't travel. And I'm home. I worked out of my house for 31 years. Now, I've got to figure out how I'm going to be able to drink. She'd go to work. I'd mess around the house, cut the grass, whatever. Wash a few dishes, maybe wash some clothes. And about 4.30, I'd go in the kitchen and start cooking. I was a good cook. I, I cooked things like Cornish game hen and red plum sauce and oysters Rockefeller. And I'd have it all piled up there. Of course, i got my bottle right here. I kept my liquor in the refrigerator. It don't freeze, it just gets cold and pours through some of that. See, when I'm on the company cart, I drink from the top shelf. But when I'm on my dime, I get it out of the basket with the dust on it, you know. <laughs> I didn't care what it tastes like. I drink it for the effects. The big book said many women drink consistently because they like the effect produced by alcohol. To me, that's an under-damn statement. I love the effect produced by alcohol. And that's the reason I drank it, was to feel different. And uh, I'd be there drinking, bloodshot eyes. And she'd come in, you're drinking. How can you fuss at me and I got you this beautiful dinner? So what I'm doing is buying drinking time. And anyhow, I, I, when I'm on the road, I call, this is before cell phones and computers and all that. And I'd call home every night about 10 o'clock to see if I had the messages for that day. And the first thing out of her mouth, I said, hey, baby. She said, you've been drinking. How in the hell they smell it over the telephone? <laughs> I never know how they smell it over the telephone. And we'd have a discussion of, oh, I'm going to have a couple tonight. Yeah. yeah well, I never had a couple of anything, I don't think. And it started getting worse and worse. Now, I know there's no search word that's worse. 
But if you're an alcoholic and you drink like me, it got worse. <laughs> and it did. It got real bad. And uh, But see, one night I started towards the... Oh, after being living in Atlanta for about three years, I talked to her in the less moving. I said, would you move if I bought us a house on Lake Sinclair down in the Minnesota? I said, that beautiful lake we skied on when we were in uh, high school and college and all. She said, I might think about that. So I went looking for a house in Lake Sinclair. And I found me a house on Lake Sinclair. And I bought a house on Lake Sinclair. And we moved out of Smyrna down there. And that's when the drinking picked up. The last three years I was drinking. It was just, it was, it was horrible. I would, uh, I wouldn't drink in the daytime. See, she called me an alcoholic. I said, I can't be an alcoholic. Never had a DUI. I've never been in jail. I got a house, car, job, money in the bank. And I don't drink in the daytime. I only drink from 5 o'clock on. Every hardworking young man drinks at 5 o'clock, right? Kind of steady your nerves after a hard day's work. Got so damn steady sometimes I couldn't move. <laughs> and uh, I'd go to the liquor store at quarter to 5. And you, you heard people talking about they moved around and bought liquor from different stores so people would know how much they drank. Well, I ain't an alcoholic, so I go to the same damn liquor store every day. <laughs> every day. I walk up there, park in front of the place, walk in. Mr. Craig Craft is going to reach up on that shelf and got that bottle. He's putting it in that sack. He reaches in the other cooler, six-pack of Cokes. Other cooler, six-pack of PBR beer. And he, knew, he knew I was going to buy that. I might buy something else if we had company. But that was my daily ration. And I'd get home and I'd start to drinking it. The mouth of the South would open up on me. <laughs> she couldn't let it rest. And one Sunday night she said to me, she says, Will you give me one night in two weeks and you don't get drunk? I said, I'll give you your night. And I sold up, went set in my junk ch- drunk chair, and I wouldn't talk to this wench that night. She'd say something to me. I said, Yeah, no, maybe. Well, we got up Monday and it was kind of frosty around the house. Monday afternoon at 5 o'clock, I start towards the refrigerator. And she gave me what I have come to turn the thin lip look. I don't know where y'all ever got it or not, but the head kind of cocks to the side, and them lips get thin and purple. <laughs> and I put my finger in her face, and I said, Don't you say anything to me now. I gave you a night last night. And I got in the bottle of my courage, and about 7 o'clock, I started toward to get me another drink. I'm about halfway through that court. And she looks at me again. Well, I got my courage in me now. And I swell up. I said, why don't you get out of my life? You're my problem. I can't even come home and have a couple of drinks about you raising hell about it. I mean, I'd be much better off if you leave. She said, I would try to go, but you might try to stop me. I said, that's all you worried about. I get you an escort. I went to the phone, called the sheriff's office. <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> I said, I'm out here having a few drinks, and my wife's a little upset, wants to leave. Would you send this deputy out here to escort her off of my property? <laughs> Sir, we don't like to get involved in domestic disputes. Can't you handle this? I hung up the phone, picked it up, I called the sheriff directly to his house. He's my ex brother in law. <laughs> I said, Louie, I'm having trouble with her day and she wants to leave. Will you send a deputy out to escort her from my property? He sent two. Two cars pull up in the driveway. I invited them in. 
the bottle sitting in the middle of the t- kitchen table. I said, how about a drink, fellas? Oh, we don't need it. We can't drink. I'm thinking, if you're chasing criminals, you need a damn drink. <laughs> she goes in that bedroom and she packs a bag and she goes and gets in her car. And when I saw the taillights go over the back of the hill in the house, I felt good. That goes my damn problem. I've got rid of my problem. But like I told you a while ago, there's only one thing about getting drunk and that's passing out and coming to the next morning. I got <clears throat> came to the next morning and I said, uh-oh. <laughs> you have messed up, baby. Well, I knew where she would be with our best friends in Atlanta. I went to the phone. I called Beverly. And I, I said, Sherry's with you? She said, sure. I said, let me speak to her. And I hear her in the background. I ain't talking to it. But Beverly put her on. And I had met all these promises before. And this wasn't the first time she left me. <clears throat> but I was always making these high promises that I'm going to be better. It's going to be different. It always was different. It always got worse. And uh, so finally I said, is there any way that you can come back home? She said, not unless you get some professional help. Now people, don't you ever ask this next question unless you want the answer. Because they got the answer for you. I said, do you know where I can get this help? She knew. (laughs) She had been talking to people about my behavior. The reason she had met this one counselor, she had checked her father, who was an alcoholic, in the state hospital A&D ward for the 13th time in three years. He was a periodic. He'd go six, eight, ten months without taking a drink. And he'd take a drink, and then her mother would start, and they'd drink around the clock for two or three weeks. Get them over that, it was good for another six, eight, ten, twelve months. <clears throat> but she was standing there crying one afternoon after checking her father in the state hospital uh, A&B ward and this guy came out and says little lady look you need somebody to talk to come in my office and he was the uh, treatment director at that A&B clinic and they talked and she told him about her father and then she told him about me and he said you want me to go talk to him she said oh hell no no go no but anyhow, he gave her a name and number where he could be reached 24 hours a day. And uh, she gave me this number. She said, call Jim. Maybe he can help you. I didn't know who this guy was. I called him. He said, come out and talk to me this afternoon. I went out at 3 o'clock and we talked at 5. And he talked me into going to treatment. And I asked him one time, I said, Jim, you think I'm an alcoholic? He said, I don't know. He said, you just got to make that decision. He said, but you might ask yourself... Do normal people drink like you do? Now, how am I supposed to know what the hell's normal? And I said, okay, it's coming up on the first week in December, and I didn't stop traveling the second week in December, and I don't travel to the second week of January. So I said, I need a vacation. I'll go to treatment. He named one in Statesboro, Georgia. I said, I don't want to go there. And my reason for not wanting to go there that I knew two boys that had been there, and I'm drinking liquor with them, so my pea brain is no good. So I said, I don't want to go there. He named one in Atlanta. I said, I don't want to have anything to do with Atlanta. He said, well, there's one in Alabama called uh, Brookwood Lodge. I said, yeah. Sounds like my kind of place. I see it now. Brookwood Lodge. I get my fishing pole, my golf clubs, my tennis racket, and I go to treatment. 
He said, no, you leave those home, they'll have enough for you to do while you're there. I agreed to go. And I ended that treatment center on, well, I had my last drink on, uh, on December 2nd, 1983. It was Friday afternoon. I called Atlanta about 5 o'clock. I said, baby, you're going to be home tomorrow. She said, I'm coming home after lunch. We'll pack your bag Sunday. You go to your director's meeting at the company on Monday. We drop you off treatment Monday night. It'll be good to have you home. Went straight to that refrigerator and opened that door. Got me a brand new bottle. If she don't know about it, how can it hurt? It must have. I must have thought there's something wrong with it because the next morning I got up, I got all that trash together and the beer cans and the chasers. And I sprayed about six cans and all that smelled good around the house and took it to the trash. She came home. We had a pretty nice weekend. And we packed my bag Sunday. I went to my meeting Monday. My director's meeting for the company. Go to meet Monday night. Now, I did not know anything about treatment. And we get in there, and the first night, they put me in detox. Well, I hadn't had a drink since Friday. But they said, you've got to stay in detox one night anyhow. Then what they really got me, they started going through my suitcase. They went in my shaving kit took my shaving lotion. I never in hell drank shaving lotion. What the hell? See, I drank from the top shelf, except when it's my money, I drank from the bottom shelf. And uh, then uh, Monday afternoon, I went up to the program after my, uh, after my uh, Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday morning, I had my physical. Tuesday afternoon, I went up to the program. And we in there, and they started talking about abstinence. Abstinence. So I got a question, please. They said, what's your question? I said, doesn't abstinence mean you don't do it at all? That's right. I said, damn, this is severe. <laughs> They're going to take my liquor away from me. Scared the living hell out of me. How am I going to live? I didn't know. My counselor, Ken, worked with me. And I stayed there 30 days. I went on December 5th of, of uh, 1983. I got January the 5th, 1984. I went to my first meeting on January the 6th in Millersville, Georgia. Met my sponsor that night. Not knowing anything about AA or how it works. He said, we're going to teach you. And he started working with me. Mr. Ed died almost a year later. One Saturday morning they called me and said Mr. Ed had a heart attack. He expected him to die, and he did. And before I went to bed that Saturday night, I had another sponsor. Because I had seen in that time how, how important a sponsor was. And today, sponsor is an acronym for me for Sober Person Offering Newcomer Suggestions on Recovery. That's all I got to do with any, suggest with anybody, or to share with anybody, is what I've done, where I came from, and what I've done. And so that's what I try to do with newcomers. Because I remember I was a newcomer one time, scared to damn death. And uh, Sardina came over for the third week that I was in that treatment center. And she started the meeting with the families. And she started going to Al-Anon. But she, she went because of me. She was going to find out how to keep me sober. There's nothing wrong with her, you see. And uh, finally she found out that thing was wrong with her too. That her mom and daddy had uh, her dad drinking had affected her too. So we started going to our meetings. And to tell you, uh, see, I always want to be a big shot wherever I go. And uh, to impress people, I guess, I bought a little spiral notebook. And every meeting I went to, where it was in Dallas or Miami, Louisville, Kentucky, wherever it was, I'd write it down in that book. 
In the first year I was in the program, I went to 264 meetings. I guess what I thought that one of these days AA is going to come up with a pension plan and me not knowing how many meetings I went to, I might miss a benefit. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyhow, I, uh, I got into the program. I started to work in it. Got dissatisfied, or some of us got dissatisfied with the guy that was running the Millersville group. We formed the clubhouse, and we had that for a long, long time. And we, had, we would have 100, 125 people there on Friday and Saturday night. A lot of recovery went through there. And that's what our primary purpose is. The fifth tradition said we stay sober and have another suffering alcoholic. And I can't stay sober if I don't keep, quit going if I quit going to meetings. That's when I go to a lot of meetings. I tell people I go to five to seven meetings a week. I don't need but one meeting a week, but I don't know which one of those I need, so I go to all of them. I might miss one. People that don't go to meetings can't hear what happens to people that don't go to meetings. And I see it all the time. I've, I've buried people, friends that drink themselves to death. I've had more pain in sobriety than I ever had when I was drinking. Because when I was drinking, I could have necessized any pain, whatever it was. But since I've been sober in 1992, uh, uh, I had a double knee replacement at the same time at Houston Clinic. And when they cut your knees, to the, you, you suffer. And uh, in 2000, uh, in, in 1994, my best friend that I had drank that last beer with when I quit for that five minutes, he, he contracted cancer and died. In 98, my son-in-law took a 357 Magnum, went out to our company pond in Washington County and blowed his brains out. Mm. Left my daughter with her with two kids at the time, 10 and 14. In, 19, in 2000, Sertie's mama died. 2002, my father died. 2003, my 43-year-old son died of alcoholism. 2009, down at Woodstock and uh, Callaway Gardens. On Saturday afternoon, my 21-year-old beautiful granddaughter got killed by a drunk driver that afternoon. Those are bad times. But never once did I think about taking a drink. I had people around me all the time. I called my sponsor and the first thing he did, he was there. He brought the other people with him. Same thing with Sarah Jane when her mother died. The Alanons were there with her. See, we help each other stay sober one day at a time. And uh, those times are not good times. But I survived it. And I got a God of my understanding today that I didn't think I would ever have. See, I grew up around that middle Georgia area with those hellfire damnation preachers that pounded for the important thing and said, if you think about it, you're going to hell. If you do it, you're going to hell, and God's going to get you for that. <laughs> well, why is God going to get me? Because He loves you? I didn't understand that. And I was scared of God. The scariest I've ever been is when my son was born. See, I'd always heard that God's going to get me, right? So my son is born, and we bring him home, and he's in the next bedroom. And nobody knew this for a long, long time. I was two years sober before I would tell anybody. When I was home sometime during the night, I'd get up and go in the bedroom and put my hand on his chest to see if he's still breathing, because God's going to punish me. 
18 months, I went around. Uh, later, I went through the same thing when my daughter was born. Terrified that God is going to snatch her away. God's going to punish me because I've been a bad boy. And I come in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and just like Evie told Bill Wilson, why don't you choose your own conception of God? You don't have to take anybody else's. They told me that. They said, if, if you could choose your God, how would you like your God to be? I said, well, if I could choose God, I'd like for him to be kind, loving, forgiving, understanding what's the best for me. They said, why don't you pray to that God? I said, what about that preacher? They said, that's his, that's his God. You get to choose the one you want. I said, damn, that simple as it has to be for a drunk to understand it. <laughs> so that's the one I chose. And that's the one I pray to today. Now, I started believing there was that kind of God. But it took me a while to trust him. But now I trust, trust him and listen. And I go to him every morning and every night. I went to him a while ago in the bathroom and asked him to be with me tonight. And may I say what he wanted me to say. And the only thing I know to talk about when I'm up here is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and how it helps us. We couldn't survive this thing without both programs. It took her a while to get into Al-Anon. It took me a while to get into AA. And I love the history of this thing. You take a broken down stockbroker from New York and an Akron proctologist <laughs> get together and form this thing. Trial and error. See, they didn't have this book when, when they got sober. They didn't have that. They didn't have any instructions to go by. It's laid out for us. All we got to do is follow the directions. And Bill Wilson meant for them to be directions. I know it says, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. But on page 29 it says, clear on, clear further on, clear cut directions are given. Clear cut directions. On 62 it says, God was going to be our director. What does the director do? Gives directions. On uh, 85 it says, if you have carefully followed directions, and that's what they are to me, directions. If I live my life like that. Principles. Principles. Bill Wilson taught principles just like Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ preached principles. He didn't say you had to jump out and turn around three times and bear down to the east to go to heaven. He said, live by these principles. And this is where our program comes from, from these men before us that uh, put this thing together. Bill Wilson was just an just a instrument that done it along with the others. I love the history. I've been to Stepping Stones. I've been to uh, St. John's Bear where Dr. Bob uh, was born and raised. It's a treatment center. His house is a treatment center now, but they have their A meetings there. I've been to East Dorset, Vermont, where Lois and Bill is buried. They have meetings there, Alanon and AA. It's a bed and breakfast place now run by AAs. You're welcome to stay there if you're up there. Been to the cemetery where they'll be been to Akron to Founders Day. We love to go. Now recently we went up to we went up to see the Lee's turn a couple of years ago. We got a motor home and we traveled. We went up through uh, Pennsylvania and up in New York and crossed over into Vermont and New Hampshire and came down through Massachusetts and all. While the leaves were changing. Beautiful. When I was drinking, you think I'd go for something like that? I'd go for a flashing light said, on tap. On tap. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for leaves to change. And uh, I even went to uh, I even went to uh, 
old Benny went to uh, Ebby Thatcher's grave. Ebby Thatcher is buried in a place called the Old Benny Rural Cemetery. Rural, right? Rural. There'd be a few graves there, right? Man, it goes on for you, ever. We stopped by the office, and the guy told us where, what section it was in. We finally found the section, and it took us how long? 30 minutes to find it. There must have been 200 graves in that uh, section, but we found it. And I thank Ebby for passing it on to Bill. I, I, I don't know where Roland Houses is buried, but I'll go there one of these days if I get a chance, because he passed it to Ebby. Ebby passed it to Bill, and Bill passed it to us. I enjoy my life today, all because of this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I'm sober today. I'm living in an unnatural state, being sober. My natural state is to be drunk. And living sober is unnatural. So if I quit doing what I've been doing, that old thinking will revive itself. I have seen it happen so many times. I have gone to funerals where people quit going to meetings. Oh, I got it now. I know what to do. But they invariably go back out. A lot of them die. A lot of them have wrecks and kill people. Thank God I don't think I've ever killed anybody. There's two commandments I don't think I ever broke. I don't think I ever killed anybody or coveted my neighbor's manservant. <laughs> now, if you know different, keep it to yourself. I don't want to know that. I just want to thank everybody for the, for the wonderful food y'all prepared tonight and having Saturday night up here with my friends. And, and uh, y'all are my friends, too. I just hadn't met you yet. Thank y'all for having me.